Blog Talk Radio. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Everybody and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Jean. I'm your host, and I am a person in successful long-term recovery from alcohol addiction. I write about my journey in sobriety from day one to now, over five years later, over at unpickledblog.com. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here on the Bubble Hour. On this episode, you will meet one of the most respected swimmers in the world, Carlin Pipes. After nearly two decades of swimming in the Masters category, Pipes has become the most decorated Masters swimmer in history, amassing more national and world records than anyone before her, with a current, get this, a current world record tally of 223. 223 world records. That's crazy. In 2015, Carlene reached the pinnacle, Carlin reached the pinnacle of her swimming career when at age 53, she was inducted into the prestigious International Swimming Hall of Fame, joining all-time swimming greats such as Janet Evans and Mark Spitz in this recognition. What makes Carlin's induction truly incredible, though, is not the long list of records and accomplishments she accumulated to qualify for this honor. It's the winding, near-death journey she took to get there. As a young teen, she was pegged as an Olympic hopeful, and after high school was granted a full athletic scholarship at the University of Arkansas. With a bright future ahead, she soon disappeared from the competitive swimming scene. Her history-making success would not unfold until more than a decade later, when she returned to competition in her 30s and then, at 35, accepted a full athletic scholarship to attend California State University Bakersfield. She won three individual national titles while making the Dean's List every quarter. So what happened during those lost years and how it turned into triumph is the subject of Carlin's book, The Do-Over, which, by the way, just won the 2016 Buck Dawson's Author Award. Carlin joins us to share her story of recovery. Carlin, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Aloha, and thank you, Jean, so much for having me on the show. I'm really happy to be here. Aloha. It's that's a word I hear. I'm I'm Canadian, so when I hear that I'm instantly feel the sunshine on my skin. You live in Hawaii full time. You're coming to us today from California where you're visiting at the moment, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I moved to Kona from frigid cold San Diego in two thousand and thirteen or two thousand and three and uh, it's been one of the best moves of my life. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in Hawaii? Mm, sign me up. That sounds great. Um, we have so, so much to talk about. I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. I devoured your book. I was just telling you before we went on air, it actually took me a long time to read it because I just, like, I clung to every page. I didn't want to skim anything. I didn't want to miss anything. Um, you did a beautiful job on your book of explaining not only your personal story, but 
you know, when, when one person in recovery tells their story, we all hear ourselves, even though the details might be different. So many of our core experiences are the same, and um, it's a great book. We're going to just scratch the surface on your story in this hour, um, but I wonder if we could start out by just having you share with us a little bit about yourself and about your story, Carlin. <laughs> Wow, where do you start? I mean, do we have three minutes, like in a meeting? <laughs> um, <laughs> you have 30 minutes. I have 30 minutes. So, well, you know, it it depends upon how far back we want to go. But one of the first things I want to kind of draw into the audience is, is that I was um, addicted to two different substances, and both of them were liquid. Um, one had uh, the power to kill me, which was alcohol, and the other one had the power to heal me, and that was the water in which I swam in. And, you know, there's a lot of different levels of gratitude that some, a person in recovery has. And I would say, you know, I'm great. You know, the one where I was addicted to alcohol and couldn't live without it and drank for over 4,000 days straight. And then my um, much healthier addiction, which is in swimming. And one of the beautiful things is the water, for me, it can represent a lot of different things. It doesn't have to represent competition. To me, the water is just my best friend. And it's been there. It saved my life when I was a youth. It saved my life um, in when I was in my 30s getting sober. And it saved my life when I had a shattered heart in my 50s. So it's amazing that the consistency of that one theme throughout my life has always been water. And it's no doubt I'm a Pisces. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you had, so, you had a difficult childhood, didn't you? I, you know, I think everybody has challenges in different parts of their life, and and my family upbringing was no different. My father was an active alcoholic. My mom was a struggling mother of five with kids under five kids under the age of seven, and uh, I saw dysfunction at an early age. And being very sensitive, I always felt like I either caused it or I could help it. And I do recall listening to my parents fight and thinking that if I was just a better daughter or if I did something better or I didn't make any trouble or needed less, that that fighting and those arguments and those loud, angry words would, would go away. And little did I know that that was just, you know, the life of growing up in an alcoholic home was the, those tendencies that you have to think that it's all your fault. Have you ever felt that way before? I well yeah I I don't know if you know this but I was the center of the universe everyone else thought they were but I really was so <laughs> all about it's all about me <laughs> I never phrased, I never thought of it that way because that it really it does seem like I would have a lot of power if I could stop two adults from fighting and and make the whole entire family happy but boy when you're a kid you think that you must have had something to do with it and and that really plays into your self-worth and and low self-esteem when all your environment that you're growing up in is just full of so much tension and anger um luckily when i was very young age 4 um my mom was a swimmer and uh i got involved in the YMCA and i went to their learn to swim program which for i am forever grateful to the YMCA and um there i found acceptance um you know, I got rewards. I The water was warm. It, it embraced me. My instructors were so supportive. I felt like I did something really well. And uh, I knew that from those very early swimming lessons that the water was going to be my friend. So um, that, was, that, that really saved me in my early years was 
uh, getting up um, and getting to the pool, learning how to do the strokes. And then my first race was when I was at age six. And I remember swimming a 25-yard freestyle and getting this really big red ribbon for my, you know, accomplishments. So I was like, wow, this is a fun thing to do. And people thought, wow, you did that great. And I guess so many of the things I didn't feel I was getting at home uh, were filled by the water and and swimming. And so I quickly took to that and and excelled. Mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of people can relate to getting hooked on achievement. For you, it was swimming. It made people happy. It made you happy. Um, And how did that kind of move forward through your teen years? Well, as I, it, 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 in writing the book, it's been really interesting because, you know, you really get, and what, what I realized that, that I was a pretty scrappy kid, that um, when I was in Lompoc the first time that I, first team that I swam, and we were in a very small community, and I could see the bigger kids, and I wanted to swim like them, I wanted to be like them, and, and by the time we had actually, um, I progressed to about age eight, I was at the top level of swimming for that area. But then we moved to San Diego. And we, I went from a little fi- a big fish in a little pond to a little fish in a big pond. And then I got to San Diego and, and joined another team, and now I was one of the slowest kids. And by four years later, I was at the top of that level, and I you know, climbed my way to the heap. And just as soon as I did that, we changed to another local team, which was an Olympic caliber team. We had Olympians on our team, and we were coached by an Olympian, Mike Troy, who had a gold medal from the 60 Olympics. And at that point, I did the same thing again. I, I looked up, I saw where I wanted to go, and I worked really hard, and I put my nose to the grindstone. And by age 15, I was winning uh, junior national championships, and I had swimming success kind of written all over me. But something also happened at age 15 that changed my life. And do you want to guess what that was? <laughs> A little sip of something special? A little sip of something special. And... That was um, actually my very first boyfriend introduced alcohol into our relationship. The first time he he got um, wine, blue nun wine, and I was like, oh, that was horrible. And the next time he got low and brow beer, and I'm like, oh, that was horrible. And then he got me rum and cokes, and I tried those, and that was okay. But I never felt anything from it. But later that year, I stole a couple of beers and drank them straight down, hated the taste, and I got my first official buzz. And as soon as I got that buzz, man, it was like this was the kind of liquid I wanted to be attracted to rather than the liquid in the pool. And um, and it was like a feeling that I had been searching for my whole life. Uh, the, the rough edges became smooth. The past hurts became less painful. I just felt like everything was going to be okay. And uh, it was funny. I, I can say throughout my entire drinking career I never – like the taste of alcohol, but I sure did like how it made me feel. And yet it's really hard to sort of put the two lifestyles to one another as your teen years went on and you continued to drink more and your genetic predisposition to alcoholism and maybe some of your childhood experiences contributed to a, a pretty quick escalation of um, of drinking behavior for you. How did you manage to keep the two going, swimming competitively and drinking kind of competitively? (laughs) Um, Those are are two opposing ends of the spectrum. It's hard to find balance. 
You know, well, most people will actually think that, and I think this is one of your questions. It, they actually, um, swimming, competitive and elite swimming, and partying go hand in hand. These, uh, for the most part, swimmers are known to be partiers. Uh, as in my teen years, you know, it was a little more challenging because it was kind of like, how do you get people to get you um, loser alcohol? And it was mostly relegated to weekends. But I know that I was really seeking that feeling. And, and in retrospect, what I looked at was I felt that the things that I was feeling when I was, you know, drinking, you know, it filled in those cracks that made me feel more than. It um, gave me self-confidence where I really lacked it. And it built up my self-esteem. However, falsely, I was prettier, I was smarter. And I realized I didn't work, have to work so hard to get that as I did in the pool. So it was the easier way out. I could get those feelings and those things that I wanted with an alcoholic buzz as opposed to training for six months straight and hoping that I have that great feeling when I see the sport you know, board saying uh, a new best time. So one was a hard and difficult path requiring a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice. And the other one was, wow, let's go become a party girl and get all kinds of attention there. So my mental shift was I want the easier way. I've been t- mm-hmm. I'm tired of working so hard. But, you know, it's, if people really think about the sport of swimming, it's long hours. It's hard work. Your performance is always being judged by the clock, by your coach, by yourself. You're up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go get into a wet pool when everybody else is tucked into their beds. And then you submerge yourself in this sensory-deprived environment of a bathtub called a swimming pool, and you go back and forth and back and forth 200, 300 times per session, and you do that twice a day. Don't you think it would seem kind of likely that once you got out of that pool that you might just want to bust out and kind of go a little crazy? Because that's a crazy-making environment to just <laughs> immerse yourself into, you know? And and we only need to look as far as Michael Phelps to see that um, swimmers party Swimmers have been known to get caught driving drunk, and swimmers actually do drugs too. So it's a, it's a culture that most people aren't aware of that that occurs all the time, and and it's just a way to relieve the stress from the the monotony of training and staring at a black line for five hours a day. It's crazy. <laughs> Uh, you know, another thing you bring attention to in your story is the role that eating disorders can play in competitive athletics, too, and in your experience in swimming. Um, can you tell us about that? Yes, that was uh, that was interesting. Um, uh, when I was 15 and uh, pretty much at the top of my game, um, I was very lean. I could eat anything I wanted. And then as I rolled into 16, I didn't swim as much, but I kept eating the same way. And I put on, like, immediately, like, 10 pounds, um, you know, let's say five kilos at least. And I didn't see myself as being heavier, but I was being not being noticed by the boys that much. And I ended up getting mono one year and losing all this weight, and I didn't want it to go back on. And I recalled hearing a coach say to my sister some years back, she was complaining that they, she'd eaten too much for breakfast, and he suggested that she go stick her finger down her throat and throw up. So fast forward to four or five years later, I recalled that, and when I ate too much, I decided to try that weight loss method. And little did I know that that um, simple 
you know, little phrase that was stuck in my brain for so many years ago would end up becoming an, an addiction with, you know, with bulimia, which lasted for many, many years. It didn't really abate until I got sober. And so it was interesting that the alcohol was a way kind of to let loose and lose control. And the eating disorder was a way to gain control because I could say, well, I can eat anything I want and I'm just going to get rid of it. And that's my solution. So boy, it was, it was uh, between, you know, my early addictions, you know, started playing out pretty heavily in my later teen years and then continued on into college and on onward. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty rough, you know, dealing with the, the, the mental backlash from these behaviors that you're choosing that are clearly unhealthy for you. They're bad for, you know, they're dangerous, the drinking, the partying, leaving yourself exposed to, you know, issues and things that could be happening. Um, and you're not, you're not uh, aware. And then the, the dangers of the bulimia where you just, just completely distort the way you look at food and, and the way you, you eat. It's, it's, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of self-loathing going on from a pretty early age. That battle between control of an eating disorder and the loss of control or the, the num- numbing out to alcohol addiction, I, that is a very common thread amongst our listeners and amongst the, the, the guests that we've had on this show and the feedback that I get. And it seems to me that, you know, there's a, there's for women in particular, um, often those two struggles go hand in hand. And I think they're just different manifestations of the same pain or different, you know, coping strategies Mm -hmm. for the same kind of pain. But so in your case, you know, by the time you graduated high school and then, you know, the next natural thing for you was to take advantage of the opportunity to go to university for free and swim competitively. I mean, you know, that's a, that's every parent's dream to have a child that gets a full ride scholarship and is going to, you know, be able to swim competitively and, uh, or compete as a, you know, a university athlete. And um, how did that unfold for you? Well, it was, it was, when I graduated from high school, I still had some pretty decent times. I was looking back at some of, uh, of the times that I'd done and, and uh, I actually kind of pulled myself up a little bit. Uh, but, you know, okay, so when, when you're a person in addiction, you run through the scenario in your mind, all right, um, I did that behavior, I'm not happy about it, tomorrow I'm going to do it better, tomorrow I'm going to do it different, I'm going to rededicate myself, I'm going to quit doing whatever that is, fill in the blank. And as you know, there's so many different addictions out there that, um, you know, you could put in anything, shopping, parenting, exercising, eating, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, the whole bit. Okay, so as a teen, I'm sitting there saying, okay, tomorrow I promise I'm not going to throw up anymore. I'm going to eat normal. I'm going to rededicate myself to the pool. I'm going to reach my potential that everybody's been telling me that I have. And by, you know, so I wake up in the morning, fresh start, and on my way to school, I stop off at the local donut store and I buy like six donuts. And on my way to school, I'm eating those. And by first period, I'm throwing up in the bathroom. So there goes the first, you know, blow up, right? And then now I say, well, I'm going to go to practice. I'm going to go to practice. And then by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm thinking of an excuse why I'm not going to go. And how can I get out of getting going to practice? So you can see the cycle kind of still starts to become horrible, right? So all these are choices that I'm making and, and then making poor choices. 
my college choice was based not on the swimming program, not on the coaching, not on the education. It was based on a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I had the most important criteria. The most important. I had 15 full scholarship offers all over the United States, some to some really wonderful programs, but nope, I was dead set on that guy because that guy was going to help me get, I don't know, whatever. So uh, so needless to say, the guy didn't work out. Um, the school didn't work out. I lasted three semesters, uh, and I really actually only lasted two. Uh, my coach gave me, I was academically ineligible, and um, I blew that blew that last semester and then came home. And for the next 10 years, I dropped in and out of college uh, at least six or seven times. I'd start with great intention, just like I would every day. I'd say, okay, today I'm going to rededicate. I'm going to not do those bad behaviors. And, you know, usually by 12 o'clock, everything was out the window and I was back doing, you know, whether it was overeating, drinking, skipping class, skipping practice. Yeah, it was a mess. It was, it was so, it's so hard on your psyche to completely let yourself down over and over and over again. And you get to the point where at age 31, I had thrown away so many choices or thrown so many opportunities, so many things that had been given to me that others had been denied. And that just fed even more and more into you, Carlin, you're a loser, you're a quitter, you don't deserve the talent that you have, you don't deserve the opportunities you have, have been offered. So just keep drinking. You know, pretty soon something will just take care of itself and just keep drinking. Don't stop. And that's what I did until age 31. And um, with diminishing success um, in 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 your personal life and everything, I mean, we, we kind of think, oh, I can just keep this going. You know, like this is, I'm still having fun. I'm still able to work. I'm still hobbling together. Yes. But little by little, like it can never stay the same, can it? You know, no. I, I, I had this thing going where I'd work my butt off all day long and then I'd come home and let the pressure off with wine at night. And I kind of for, you know, for maybe a year or two, that might have been the perfect equilibrium. But little by little by little, the alcohol just keeps taking more and more and more. And the imposter syndrome just grows. And so as your 20s that, went that's, on. That's amazing. You know what? You're right. Because at first, your whole life is this like 99% and the drinking is just 1%. And you're right. It's like a cancer that grows. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, that, and then it starts weaving itself into every aspect of your life so that there's nothing real about your life. The only thing that real is that you can't live without that drug, whatever that drug is, that's pulling you in, whether it's, you know, going off and hiding and eating or going off and secretly shopping um, you know, it, you, what it is is eventually you cannot hide the evidence of the, that life. That's true, um, yeah. And it stops working. That's the problem. You keep thinking like, okay, this is still working, but it looks nothing like it did in the beginning, you know? Yeah. It's like I'm still having <laughs> fun. And so you talk about in your book one thing that really, you know, thumped me in the chest, and I have to say that there was many moments in your book that took my breath away, and I'm not a swimmer. I'm not an athlete. And yet you describe what it felt like to be you in such a way that I found our common ground. And I think, you know, our listeners will have the same experience as they read your book. Um, but one one thing that you describe that really hit me hard in the chest was 
where you were, you know, towards the end of your drinking years. I'm not sure how old you would have been at this time, but I suspect your late 20s. And you wanted to still swim and still, like, train. I'm using air quotes as I say training. Um, But you would go out into the open water and, like, be dodging container ships and and (laughs) vessels to get your swimming in because you knew if you went to a pool, people would smell the, the vodka on your breath that you were drinking constantly. Um, the crazy, the, you know, the, that's such a that that's a perfect example of insanity that seemed perfectly rational at the time with my adult brain. You know, right. it's yeah. like I can't go into a pool because people are going to know. You know, so we got to keep the secret. We got to keep the pretense. So if I get near somebody in a pool, that alcohol bounces across the water. Uh, anyway, and. So, yeah, I would go down to the local, the San Diego Bay, and the boss that had fired me five times, which, of course, he ended up on my fourth step and fifth step because I had a resentment because he fired me. Of course, what a I was jerk. feeling from him. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I would work in this restaurant, and I'd have one of the busboys. They were usually Mexicans from across the border, and I'd have them watch. Like, like hold guard on the walk-in, you know, the refrigerator, and I would open up these gallon jugs of wine that were in the walk-in that were for customers, and I would drink straight from this big gallon of wine while I had a busboy, you know, watching Century for anybody to come back. I'd drink like, you know, 30 glugs or whatever, and then go back to work, you know, and think that was perfectly normal, you know. Mm-hmm. So that same boss um, had a different restaurant, and I would check in with him. He was my lifeguard. I'd say, Steve, I'm going to go for a swim in the bay. If I'm not back in, you know, like 45 minutes or an hour, you know, send out the Navy, which the Navy was in the bay already. I'm <laughs> I'm staying amongst aircraft carriers and container ships, and, and, and but I'm getting my work at him. So... And I did come back every time, so but it was and yeah, protecting crazy. your protecting your alcoholism while you did it. And here's here's what, here's what really struck me about that because it 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 made me think of a of a friend of mine who who actually her her addiction took her life in the end. But I I saw her doing a lot of risky behaviors. I'm that's very good at judging other people, of course. But um, <laughs> it occurred to me as I saw her doing risky things that she didn't care if she lived anymore. She she cared if she kept using and she she cared to kind of keep going about her life, but she was taking risks that told me that, like, she didn't value her life anymore. Do you think that was true for you? I, I do. And, and uh, I was never uh, suicidal in thoughts as far as an, an action plan. But if um, I was completely okay with if I if I did not wake up tomorrow, I was good with it. I had thrown away so many things, you know, so many opportunities. And eventually what happens is you just throw away your life. And you are so out of control that you really want someone or something else to come in and say, okay, time to go. See you later. And, uh, and for instance, that's exactly what probably what would have occurred had my mom not accidentally intervened. And, and so I'm at age 31. I'm um, at... I, on my eighth, my 31st birthday, which was in March, I went out with some friends and we did, we drank, we partied, we did some drugs, and nothing moved my um, barometer as far as a buzz. There was no happy place anymore. That had been gone a long time ago. There was only um, neutral or below. And if I went below a certain level of alcohol in my system, I would shake. 
Um, at, no food would stay down in the morning. I would have to have a drink, and I would I would shake so violently. I had a glass, and I would be drinking vodka at whatever time in the morning. And I remember trying to get a shot of vodka in, and the glass is like hitting my teeth, rattling against my teeth. But I don't care that I'm going to maybe damage my teeth, which I just been to the dentist. I need to get that shot down. Because if I don't get that shot down, I'm going to get even sicker. And what would happen was the shot would go down, I'd feel pretty good for a couple of seconds, and then I would bark it right back up, you know. And it would be, okay, back to square one. We've got to get that one down. And, uh, and then because my alcohol level in my system was so high that uh, sometimes one or two drinks would actually just pass me right back out again. And then I would come to, and the whole process would begin again. And that was the existence. I would pass out, come to, drink, throw up, pass out, come to, drink, throw up. And every day I would say, well, today I'm going to go pay some bills or I'm going to go do. So my, the end of my last month of drinking was I was a shut-in. I was having ex-old boyfriends deliver booze to my house, and uh, I was calling in sick, you know, which is basically was just for me, it was just a code word for I'm going to die. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is close to the end. And my mom calls and she said, you can't be sick for a month. And you need to go to the doctor. And I said, well, Mom, I don't have insurance. And, you know, in Canada, you guys have insurance and coverage. I had no idea that I could, what what could I do? Could I just walk into a hospital and say, I'm a washed out drunk. I need help. I didn't know what to do. And I certainly didn't reach out to AA. Um, anyway, she scheduled a, an appointment the following day. She called me back after I hung up on her. And she said, I'm picking you up at 9 o'clock. And all through that night, I continued to drink. And um, I knew that this was the turning point, that I was going to have to share my secret. I'm 31 years old. I've been drinking nonstop since I was 19 or 18. And I knew that I was going to, the gig was up. I was done. And because as soon as I walked into the doctor's office, there's no way I was going to be able to hide it. And that was terrifying, but it was also a, a trickle of relief that there that I was going to move in a different direction, that something was going to change. And I was hopeful and scared at the same time. And and things did change in, the, in a big way because the doctor saw very quickly that you were not only an alcoholic, but you were an end-stage alcoholic. You were very near death at that point. And um, your detox was horrific. Um, it was. And, uh, and once you got through that, you took to recovery like a very driven athlete. Um, in fact, it almost <laughs> treated it like a sport as I read it. Uh, you were going to get through those 12 steps faster than anyone ever had before. You were going to set a world's record for the 12 steps. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, oh, but you guys stuck on one that. of them. Pardon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let me back up. So, so I did. I went into a 10-day rehab. Um, and it was touch and go for a couple of days. I, I had no idea that you could die from alcohol withdrawal. You can't die from heroin withdrawal, but you can from alcoholism. And, you know, I was really sick. But as soon as the fog started clearing, my goggles, you know, life life for me was like putting on a pair of goggles that were foggy and wearing them around the world. That was all I could see was just right what was right in front of me. And when I got into rehab and after like day four, it wasn't even like, you know, day one or two. It was like day four when I finally was able to. Oh, and they also thought I was anorexic because I hadn't eaten in months. 
Um, so they were treating me for that. I said, no, 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 you know. But one really moment of clarity in, in rehab was interesting. Is they give you Valium and vitamin B12, and the Valium is to settle you down, and the vitamin B12 is to help you, um, so you, the nauseousness. And I was taking these pills, and the doctor, I said, well, what are you guys giving me? And they told me, and I said, I don't want to take a Valium. And they said, well, we need to get a doctor to approve that. I said, I don't want to take a Valium. I don't want to walk out of here with a new addiction. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, clear that I was like, no, don't take that, you know, don't don't give me that opportunity. And we did. We got to switch to a vitamin, and everybody else got their meds, and I got a vitamin, and it it worked really well. But there was something speaking through me from a very early point in my early recovery that said, Carlin, this is a one-shot deal. This is not a return ticket. Um, you are, you get one time and you need to make the most of it and you need to prize it like nothing else before. And so when I got out of that rehab, I was ready for life and pink clouding it and, and, and just breathing for the first time and seeing without the foggy goggles. And, and it was just so refreshing. It was just like I really did, you know, come from the other side to embrace this thing we call life. And, and it was just phenomenal. And then, of course, I wanted to do everything perfectly and well because now I had some clarity. And those 12 steps, boy, I wanted to get it fast. <laughs> and, and, and you know what happened next. So um, it was, uh, I think, to everybody that's, you know, that's listening right now will really, really kind of know this feeling when you are given that opportunity at a second chance. It doesn't come around that often, and you know that, um, that, that you are special I, because we, people die in this disease all the time, and we have seen that and your friend is a good example, it's like, okay, this is what I need to do to make this happen. And I just have been grateful ever since. It hasn't been easy, but the gratitude has been there for every single experience. So I appreciate that. And Jean, in in your sobriety, what was the turning point for you? Well, in my my experience, I was was, um, trying to maintain that balance between being perfect and being drunk. And uh, as it turns out, I was I was not very good at the perfect part. And I think imposter syndrome just got the best of me. And I, I just kind of had a moment of clarity that I had to quit drinking, that it was going to kill me. And nobody really knew. Um, for me, I, it was before I got to that late stage, I was just starting to see the scales tip. Um, but I mm. sort of had an a body experience. It just a, I felt a whack in my chest and heard the words audibly, I need to quit drinking. And uh-huh. um I drank, I drank for two days trying to shut that voice up and it wouldn't shut up. So I finally had to quit drinking. Um, so and your, you know, bottom, we, when, your bottom wasn't very low. And that's what people talk about is everybody's mm-hmm. bottom is different, you know? Yeah, um, it is. And, and, and go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, I just, I just, I, I love hearing the different experiences because, you know, we're, we're, we're given an insight that, comes from us a power greater than ourselves and we can choose to listen to that message or we can ignore it and if we ignore it usually the consequences are pretty bad and how has your life changed and what is the number one thing that your life has changed in your recovery that you could say oh boy you know it it's so all-embracing that so many things it's like peeling back the layers of an onion and and so many Uh 
so many things gelled together. It's almost like my recovery is like a magnet and new things are sticking to it all the time. Things I didn't think had anything in common with it. Probably the biggest shift is that when I got sober, and I, I want to preface this with saying forgive me for this, but I might have looked at someone like you, Carlin, and said, I'm not that. She's a drunk. Mm-hmm. She's drinking straight vodka. She's, she had to go to rehab. She lost her job. She's a screw-up. She got kicked out of university. I am nothing like Carlin <laughs> Pipes. And recovery for me, I mean, sobriety is one thing, and then recovery is the next piece, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think initially I was... I was very motivated by not being like a low bottom alcoholic. I, that to me was a shame identity. I did not want, thank you very much. And recovery Mm. for me has actually been about seeing that you and I and everyone else, I mean, whether it's the guy in the park that's sleeping or the executive on wall street, that's, you know, snoring Coke at 8am to start his day. Now I see the similarities between us all. I see the aches in our heart that are underneath it all and the symptoms and the degree that the disease runs out or that the behaviors run out. That's, that's a detail that may or may yeah. not be the same, but it's the commonality that we all share. I think that's the biggest part of my healing is that I can allow myself to honestly look at the, the hurt that was behind it all. And I think that's why your book actually brought me to tears so many times because, Aww. you know, you talk about being a, a little girl who thought she had to look after things herself. You have this one really poignant moment in your book where you talk about being a little kid who, who had a problem in your house and you decided to take care of it yourself without even telling anybody. And, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't ever have that exact experience, but I sure knew what it was like to feel like I was a little girl who was on my own. And, yeah. and that, you know, I, I, I really took the weight of the world on my shoulders, and I really thought it was mine to carry. And a- another thing you talk about, and some words rang it true in my mind, is you talk about your drive. You were really driven. And when I quit drinking, I told my mom after a few months that I, you know, I was in recovery and that, of course, no one ever knew I had a problem in the first place. They just thought I was kind of a bitch. (laughs) And um, when I told her, her response was, maybe now you won't be quite so driven. And that was a really uncomfortable response for me to hear. But, uh, you know, that word has rang in my ears. and, And so it's kind of an insatiable hunger we have. So I want to take you to your next stage of your story because it gets really interesting after you got sober. You developed a new addiction and that addiction (laughs) was smashing world records. So on the outside, that's a heroic comeback story. You're 35, you're going to college and you're breaking world records, breaking Records at competing against university kids and kicking their butts. I mean, that is a cool comeback story. But there's another side to it, too, that's a little bittersweet. So, do you want to tell us about both sides of that? Hey, so yeah, I was racing with kids, but I also raced Olympians. I mean, It, it, the very prologue of the book starts with me at a at the McDonald's Olympic Swim Stadium, uh, swimming at age 30, 
spot for 96, 34. I am, you know, two years sober, and I am the first seed at, in the 200-meter backstroke, and the girls that I beat in the morning have uh, medals from 1992 Olympics, I mean, on either side of me, an Australian one side and the other, and I'm like this freaking alcoholic in lane four, the, you know, the middle lane going, <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> But, you know, the, the wonders of, of sobriety and recovery were that, you know, like I said, the gratitude and the coming alive and how everything looked better and tasted better. And it was like, who wouldn't want this compared to the darkness that I'd been to? And to be honest, it very started out very slowly. I gave myself permission to get back in the water. I started racing and I started doing really well. And that was really neat because I thought, wow, I got my body back. I got my physical body back. I'm healthy. Swimming really, really helped my recovery just because it took up time and it gave me something to do and it made me feel good about myself. And so anybody out there that is looking at time and recovery, I strongly suggest the best drug in the world is exercise because it gives you all those good feelings and it makes you feel good about yourself and there's really not many side effects unless you do take it to the extreme. But I really felt great about that. Then I realized I started taking classes and I got my brain back. I started thinking, wow, I'm actually a pretty decent student if I'm not distracted by my other addictions. And that was really cool. And then eventually I ended up going back to um, college on a full swimming scholarship. And hence the name of the book is called The Mm Do-Over. I got to do over all of these things that I completely screwed up the first time around. And that that was wonderful. So I'm rolling along, I'm getting faster, I'm swimming lifetime best, I'm breaking world records, I'm swimming college, I'm doing all this kind of stuff. And this progresses for quite a long time, um, almost 17 years, where I was just on this, you know, huge roll. Uh, I get married, I married my coach, and uh, a great guy, Eric. And between the two of us, we started um, kind of this quest to just kind of see where we could take this thing. And as, the, as, as I kept progressing, I started realizing that this was a healthy alternative to the drinking. But honestly, Jean, you know when I figured out that the world records had become an addiction? Do you, want, you know when I figured that one out? What made the difference? When I was writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with a uh, with a writer, Tito Morales. He helped craft the story, and I added to it. So we worked cooperatively together to build this. He, Michael Phelps had just gotten his second DUI, and you know he was drawing this correlation that there are some addictions that are much more socially acceptable than others. An eighty-hour work week, you know, somebody that hyper parents their kids, and and then Michael Phelps eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics, and and then the next dot 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 should be and Carlin's you know over two hundred world records, and I became so defensive. And I'm like, what are you saying? That my world record-breaking feat is just another addiction? And as soon as that came out of my mouth, I gasped, and I went, oh, my goodness. Yes, it is. And then it's just like looking back at your drink. Remember, remember, Jean, how when you first think about when you drank and you think, oh, I wasn't that bad, and then you realize, oh, I wasn't <laughs> that bad, and you realize that you've never, ever had a normal relationship with alcohol. It's always been warped. I realized as I looked back, when did this begin? It became became very early. It fed my self-esteem. It fed my low self-confidence. 
if I get up on the blocks and race and did well, I proved that I wasn't a quitter. But at some point in time, it went from a very positive thing to I need that high. I don't care who's in the pool with me. I need to see that time, and that time needs to be faster than the world record that I set a month ago. And if it isn't, it's not good enough. And that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, I need to take a break from this too. Well, and, it, you know, it was clear to me that, that even that isn't sustainable, even though it's a healthy alternative. Um, everything that goes up must come down. And mm-hmm. that means that you can shatter every world record there is, but at some point, there's always the possibility that someone else is going to break that record. There's definitely the possibility that you're going to get older and as you naturally age and, and slower. And that, um, you know, I, I learned that when I was doing music and I would release an album and I'd see the sales go up, 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 up. And maybe a song would chart a little bit, you know, on university stations or something. And I'd get so excited and then I'd brace myself because I knew it was going to come down and Mm -hmm. really in, when we look back on those things, that it, it's a blip, you know, it's an arc, but we're addicted to that up. And the, the down is really hard. So it's kind of cool that you recognized that that amazing achievement did have a, a flip side to it. And, and it's interesting as well that as eager as you were to work through the 12 steps, when you started swimming competitively and smashing all those records and really killing it in the pool, you allowed yourself to hit the pause button on your recovery in some ways too, because you were doing good things in the pool and you were staying sober, but you stopped really doing the inside work. Is that fair to say? So you were stuck on step four. You did not want to do step four. Well, it, it, and that's, and that's totally true, step four. But it wasn't until I was writing the book and I hired this wonderful um, editor up in Nova Scotia and she it was a woman in recovery. We had very similar backgrounds. And she's reading through my book, and she said, Carlin, I don't mean to seem out of line, you know, because you're hiring me to do this. But she goes, you didn't get stuck on, stuck on your fourth step. You got stuck on your third step. You don't think that God thinks that you're worth it, you know. And so my relationship with my higher power was what I questioned because even though I'm breaking all these world records, and, and by the way, nobody in the swimming community knows that beneath the surface, this is where I came from. And I didn't right. share that with people on a one-on-one basis. But for the most part, it was all about Carlin being this, you know, unstoppable, accomplished swimmer that has a perfect life. And, of course, now we are back to, you know, the imposter syndrome. They really didn't know who the, the real me was. And when she said, you really need to take a look at your relationship with your higher power and see what's holding you back there. And it was like, once again, there goes the hand on the head going, oh, she's absolutely right. And then I rewrote the book to reflect that because it wasn't the fourth step, as terrifying as that was. It was the third step. I needed to realize that I was worthy of a power of love from a power greater than myself and that I didn't need to do anything to get it. I didn't need to strive. I didn't need to work harder. I could just be me and authentically me and that's what you know my higher power wants for me is to me for me to find my purpose and my passion um that is uniquely me and it doesn't it's not attached to a grade it's not attached to a salary it's not attached to a world record it's not attached to anything but me just being me and that was oh another wow (laughs) so if you really want to speed up your recovery write a book (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that's no small task. I've been all... trying to write a book, and it's it's a it's a big job. So I commend you for it. And you know, someone well, once said but... to me, "I wish you a slow and enlightened recovery." And you can really see that through the course of your book. And just what you're saying here is that you know, we don't just slam dunk recovery and move on. Like it just reveals the lessons, just continually reveal themselves. And we've got a lot of a lifetime of learning to look forward to. Absolutely. Now say that again, a slow and enlightened recovery. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it is because right then my pulse just came down and I thought about how frantic and fast. And the point that you're getting to in my story is, you know, at the beginning we talked about that I wanted to get through the 12 steps really, really fast. Well, it actually took me 20 years and eight months for me to accomplish my 12 steps. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember taking a token when I got my 21-year tip and sharing that with people. And afterwards, people came up to me and said, wow, that took a lot of courage. I'm like, what? And they like, sharing that story. And I'm like, but it's my journey, and it's true, and I'm okay with it. And it's interesting that people would go, wow, that took a lot of guts to say that. I'm like, well, I think people need to hear that there is no one way to get sober. There's no one way to recover. It's all an individual journey, and that's just my journey. And I'm grateful that I was not picking up in the middle of that um, and finding a negative uh outlet and that swimming was for the most part extremely helpful and uh, it's been really amazing to write that book but a lot of that word with Jean I realized that with my book was I knew that if I tried to write it myself I would never get it done and I had to set aside my ego and I had to set aside my need to control and I had to set aside my fact that I don't like to waste money and I hired somebody to write my story and then we work together to to create the book and that was probably the best thing because otherwise we would not be sitting here having this conversation so (laughs) ego ego control and money big three big things for any person with addiction I would say is letting go of those things and letting somebody else create something that you can work with and and it was magic and and Tito was amazing so so it's pretty it's pretty fantastic so Well, and you were really willing to get vulnerable in this. I mean, you talk about some difficult chapters in your life, not just, you know, your your childhood and and the the sort of lost years of addiction and hitting a low bottom and clawing your way back, but you talk about, you know, some of the things that you learned about yourself along the way and going through some hard things. You touch on fertility issues, sexual abuse, um, abandonment as a child eating disorders. I mean, there's a lot more than just addiction here. You've really opened up and stood back far enough to, to look at the whole umbrella and how, um, how it all kind of relates to one another. And that, that takes a lot of courage. You know, Brene Brown says that um, vulnerability is courage and um, it's not weakness. And you, um, you definitely, you know, this book couldn't have been written if you weren't willing to be that vulnerable. Um, uh, you know, one thing I want to talk about, it's an interesting topic in this day and age that we're in because there's sort of this new ad, recovery advocacy that encourages people to talk about recovery. Um, 
because we need to hear those stories. We need to, to, we can reach people, you know, early in their addiction if we're willing to sort of share. And it's definitely sharing our stories is, is why we're here on the bubble hour. But it's a big decision to decide to tell your story. Um, anonymity in recovery is there for a purpose. It, it's necessary. And, um, and I understand why for a 12-step program, why anonymity is encouraged because, you know, they don't want anyone to become the spokesperson for their program. Um, mm-hmm. But there, there is service in Cassian and sharing our story. So mm-hmm. I, know, I know you didn't take that decision lightly. Um, how did you come to decide that, that your story needed to be heard and could help? That, uh, it, that question is really amazing because when uh, you posed that uh, earlier in an email, I really got a chance to think about it. Uh, I recall when I first got sober, I told everybody I was an alcoholic. I wore it on my sleeve. It was who I was. And, and, and it felt really good because from where I'd come from, it was this new life, you know, and I, I just wanted to share it with the world. And then um, one year after I got sober, I broke a whole bunch of world records in the local newspaper, San Diego Union, huge paper, wanted to do an article on me, and I told my whole sordid story. And I talked to my sponsor, and she explained, well, Carlin, you know, the reason why we do Alcoholics Anonymous and we stay anonymous is it's not about your story. Is that you might be reflecting on the people that you are associating with. And so, therefore, if you hang out with this person and you're a known alcoholic, then they might be assumed that the other person is too. I said, okay, fair enough. She goes, but more importantly, if you hold yourself up to be a poster child for anything like this and you fail, it's going to look poor, you know, it's going to shine poorly on the work that we're doing on this very quiet level. And that made sense to me. And I thought, no, I don't need to be a poster child for AA. I changed the story. I gave them the option to cancel it, and then they rewrote it, which was really wonderful. And the only thing that was mentioned was, and this was the quote, the only thing fast about Carlin a year ago was her lifestyle. So we went from this entire expose of my sort of dirty past to that one phrase, and that was it. And that gave me the template as I move forward in future publicity. I did not come out openly about my association with AA. However, like even in my freestyle DVD, I say, seek progress, not perfection. I throw, you know, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So if you read through articles, you'll see I was laying little nuggets of the program in. And it was really fun because people would pick up those signals and then reach out to me, and it was great. And also, of course, we know that we share when we have the opportunity when we think that we can help. So here we are now, quite a few years later, why the book and this full story. I'd reached about 20 years and I thought, you know, I think it might be time for me to share. And it terrified me that the world would know my secrets. And it terrified me throughout the entire writing process. But I realized that if one person can be helped by me sharing my story, then all of the effort and the time and expense and the opening myself up to ridicule and embarrassment, if you want, it would be worth it. And when I realized if one life could be changed on this greater sharing rather than just the meeting sharing, then it was worth it. And and, and that's what it's been. I was at a swim meet in, in May. The book had come out last year, and this woman came up to me, and she looked beautiful, and she was fit and gorgeous. And she looked at me, and she was, Carlin, I read your book, and you saved my life. 
And yeah. I said, because I got to him, I, and I was like, you're her, you're it, you're the, you're the person I wrote the book for. I said, tell me, talk to me, tell me. And she said, <laughs> I read it, it touched me. She goes, and I got to a meeting the next day. I checked myself in to uh, outpatient rehab. I did this, this, and this. And she goes, it's been like three months now, and I have never felt better. Thank you so much for writing that book. And I just started crying. And yeah. I, thought, I met her. I met her. I met the person. And if that's Lucky one you. Person, there's many, yeah. Um, and so I, we, when we are authentic and we allow ourselves to be really vulnerable like that, it just is, it gives other people permission to do the same thing. But I guess mm-hmm. like, there's one other real big reason that I didn't realize would happen from writing this book. It is the ultimate share. I am sick. I was, you're only as sick as your secrets, and all my secrets are out, and the freedom that comes from that is just undescribable. That people know me, and I can walk around, and, uh, you know, shame shame is what I held on to when I held on to those secrets and that shame and that guilt is gone because it's out there for the world to see and to judge and you know what they can do that and I am fine with it because that's their side of the street it's not mine I can't do anything about it take it or leave it and it's, it's amazing how liberating it is when you set your secrets free that comes back to what you said earlier about understanding that you are lovable and worthy of love, and and so mm. is your true story. It, it, it we can't um, we can't edit who we are. You know, um, I had this revelation actually on the air a couple of weeks ago that just, you know, I I really felt as long as no one knew my secrets, they weren't real, and I realized mm. that I just valued myself so little that I um. I felt like it didn't matter if I knew my secrets as long as no one else did. And it's really accepting that we matter. We do matter. Um, and learning to accept our validity and our, our worthiness of, of love. And uh, it's all wrapped up in that same thing. And you're right. That's, that, that alone gives us the courage to share our secrets and know it doesn't, it doesn't affect our score on the worthiness scale because that scale is kind of smoke and mirrors anyway. It's it's not real. If we if we wouldn't be here if we didn't matter. Right. And the thing is, when you actually become more real, you are actually more lovable and more likable because the other part is just is is so fake, you know. And this yeah. is the real you. And when you get to be authentically you, and that is just a feeling that many of us have, have never experienced until you let that stuff go and it doesn't. One of my favorite quotes is, whether by a chain or a thread, a bird cannot fly. And we have the obvious things that hold us back, but we also have those little tiny threads that are grabbing our legs and holding back our wings from soaring. Mm-hmm. And we need to, need to go, what are those and how do I set myself free? Just cut those ties, let them go, share them, and and be free of the guilt and shame associated with them. And, and, and that's where that new happiness and the new freedom that we hear in the promises really comes true as we let that and then it learn really to is. let life unfold. Amazing. That, and you sound that, like that was terrifying that to me, though. I, I really have to say, like, before I quit drinking, if, if you said let it go or, you know, you break the chains and, and fly, 
I was like, no, like that's what's holding me together. You know, I I couldn't let anyone see the real me. Like I really literally felt like my world would fall apart if I Mm. ever let the real me out of the box. If I ever let anyone see that my whole world was built around protecting my secrets, my shameful secret self. And um, nothing terrified me more than the idea of letting that out. And, and the fact is, that is the biggest lie we tell ourselves. The, the, yep. the, the joy and recovery, and you start living when you start mm-hmm. being authentic. And things get better, mm-hmm. not worse when those secrets come out when we're real. Well, the, when, the, when the burden is lifted, I mean, when we give up our addictions or, or let them go, it becomes lighter. But then the real work begins when we have to let go of that idea that we are less than, that we are not lovable, and, and realize that we are indeed so worthy of that love and so deserving of that. And the only person that needs to be convinced is yourself. And the best way to do that is to just acknowledge all the parts of you the good, the bad, and the ugly, and make friends with them. And and just hopefully the bad, you know, the, the, the ones that aren't that pleasant, they don't drive the bus, you know. So it's we're all a mixture of everything, and we just walk around this earth thinking that nobody else feels this way. And the reality of it is, as you said this earlier, that, that commonality, we all feel this way. You know, and uh, and that's the, that's the beauty of sharing this message is that everybody has a story. It's not just my big story. It's every beneath the surface there's the real story, and that's what I'd love people to do is to don't just look at the surface. Dip your hand underneath, go a little deeper, and if you find that you like what you feel after you've let that go, go even deeper. And the deeper you go, the freer you get. And it's just a, it's, it makes it a life worth living rather than a life worth hiding, you know. Oh, Carlin, remember when I said the hour would fly by? Yes, I know. <laughs> I hope we cut a couple of those chains and a few threads along the way and gave permission oh. to people to just dig in there. It feels so good. And you know what? The crazy thing is everybody already knows around you who you are. We just keep kidding ourselves. Oh, uh, there's truth in that. Yeah. Um, Carlin, where can listeners get a copy of your book? And where can they go oh. to learn more about you and your programs? Okay, Amazon is where the book is, and it's on Kindle and a regular paperback book. Uh, I also travel to Kelowna, British Columbia, quite often. I have a wonderful fiancé that lives there. So if you're in Kelowna, you can, um, carlinpipes.com is my website. And if you're interested in any swimming tips, then I have another website called aquaticedge.org. But pretty much if you just Google Carlin Pipes, both of those will come up, and you can kind of dig around from there. And I, I really hope people enjoy the book. It was not easy to write, and sometimes it's not easy to read. But I think the process is, well, it has a pretty happy ending. So we know that from our conversation. <laughs> well, it's a great <laughs> book. I highly recommend it to our listeners. And um, I The Do-Over. The Do-Over by Carlin Pipes, and that's K-A-R-L-Y-N-P-I-P-E-S.com. And um, Carlin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the Bubble Hour and sharing your story today. I really appreciate this opportunity. And remember, too, do-overs don't need to be extreme. They could be as simple as a change in a conversation, the way you think. Um, so do-overs can occur in small moments and in big moments, and, and they can happen at any time. So I hope everybody here today about 
maybe something they'd like to do over and do it over. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Carlan. Listeners, if you have feedback or you'd like to share your own story here on the Bubble Hour, you can write to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on the internet at thebubblehour.com. And um, remember that we are supported by the not-for-profit organization ShiningStrong.org. And I also invite you to check out my story on unpickledblog.com. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, take good care. Aloha. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And-